And it's as though Paul is saying, you can take me away from my family, from my work, from my tasks, day-to-day tasks. You can strip me off my, my golden duck. You can incarcerate me in prison, but you cannot take me away from my loving Savior. All right. Well, would you turn to Colossians, the book of Colossians, chapter 1. We're continuing with this marvelous book, and we've come here to, I believe, the very best epistle um, for us that speaks of the supremacy of Christ. And as we um, begin to discuss this book, I, um, it is like um, somehow uh, this epistle and what Paul wrote places wings on, wings on our backs and would elevate us all the way up to the throne room of heaven where we can get a good glimpse of who Christ is. It is such a, a wonderful book that reveals the glory of Christ like no other book. We thank God for this book, the book of Colossians. Let's read, and we're going to be reading and concentrating on verses 3 and 4 today. So the Word of God reads, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Now, once again, just to show you how Christ-centric this epistle is, even thus far up to this point, please note how many times Jesus Christ has already been mentioned in uh, four verses from verse 1 to verse 4. You look at verse 1, Paul, an apostle. Of whom? Jesus Christ. Second verse, to the saints and faithful brethren, Faithful brethren in whom? In Christ. Verse 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, the Father of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we come to verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in whom? Christ Jesus. Apostle of Jesus Christ, brethren in Christ, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, faith in Christ Jesus. It's like everyone is seen and assessed in this, in this epistle with reference to Jesus Christ. To Paul, the whole world pivots around and connected to Jesus Christ. Now, just a way of review, Colossian church they, um, had a major heresy and it was like a, an ugly, multi-headed dragon flying their way. And Paul in this epistle would turn on the floodlight of the sufficiency of Christ in order to toast this dragon. I want to tell you, that no matter the heresy or the false teaching you're challenged with, all false teachings, all of them 
find their doom at the feet of the supremacy of Christ. This is the first lesson that we learn from this apostle. Are you afraid of these subtle, dangerous, false teachings that is plaguing the churches all around us? You cannot be any safer than when you drown yourself in the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's the first lesson that we must learn. And that's the overarching lesson of this book. Now, as we zoom in, the second lesson that we learn is that even though this heresy is like a hungry dragon that is coming to consume the Colossians, in today's passage, we find that Paul doesn't first, you know, pull out his sword from the sheath and, and he cuts off the head of this dragon. He doesn't do that. He doesn't begin by saying, our oh, greetings, brethren. Now let's cut to the chase. You have a big problem. Let me correct you. He doesn't do this. He's not cold and dry. Now, although he will end up doing this, but he doesn't begin this way. Paul has a pastoral heart. He's such an in, a great encourager. And so what does he do? He begins by showing appreciation to the, uh, to the Colossians. He's grateful to God for them. So we start reading now in verse 3. And he says to them, this is how he begins his epistle. He says, we give thanks to God. We're still going through basic introduction to the book of Colossians. It's only when we look at verse 3, on verse 4 onwards, then when we begin, begin to really tackle this epistle. But now we'll look at that basic introduction in verse 3. We give thanks to God. What an attitude that we all ought to desire to get to have. This apostle, think about it, he's in prison in Rome, locked up in chains, and yet we find this epistle has reasons to be grateful for. How would anyone, any normal person in his shoes would react when he's locked up? Locked up in a foreign country, he's a Jew locked up in a foreign country, far removed from his families, his friends, chained to imperial guards 24-7 for a crime that he never committed. And yet he finds reasons to be grateful to God for. The last thing in a common man's um, attitude to react in this situation is to thank God for anything. You take me away from my wife and children. You, you take me away from my work. You, you lock me up from my entertainment. How dare you? And the common man would curse God, not thank God. But not so with Paul. Why is that? Do you know why? Well, Paul is basking in Christ. Jesus is his most desired being. Jesus is his most precious possession. By faith, he's always in communion with Jesus. Always. He's not alone. He doesn't feel lonely. And it's as though Paul is saying, you can take me away from my family, from my work, from my tasks, day-to-day -to -day tasks. You can strip me off my, my golden duck. 
You can incarcerate me in prison, but you cannot take me away from my loving Savior. And so no matter where I am, in pain or in relief, imprisonment or freedom, joy or difficulty, it really doesn't matter. There are thousands of reasons I have to be grateful to God for. And Christ now that led him to be so grateful, this gratitude is filling up, overflowing, and it's filling now into the ears of the Colossians. And he says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, that's wonderful. It's great to know that about the Apostle Paul. But why does he begin by giving appreciation? He could have said it later. He could have just tackled the problem since it's the most important thing that he wants to address and then appreciates them later. Why does he begin the epistle this way? It's because he wants the Colossians to know that when he's attacking, it's not them that he's attacking, it's the heresies. He begins the epistle by appreciating them because he wants to show them that he's not really against them. He just wants to help them. How does he do that? How does the apostle help the Colossians to put their guards down, to open their hearts and their minds to the corrections that he's about to give them? So what does he do? He begins by a word of appreciation. We thank God. Praying always for you. Now, in a literal Greek, just to know, he's not really flattering them. It's not that he's lying. You know, we always thank God for you. In, in a Greek, it reads this way. We give thanks to God. This is literal, all right? We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord, the Father of Lord, our Jesus Christ, always for you pray. Now, what this is saying is that it's, it's not that Paul is always day and night praying for the Colossians. You can't even do that if you tried. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that when, when he's praying for them, the first thing that comes to his mind always, whenever he prays for them, is to thank God for them. So you could paraphrase it and say, we, we, we always give thanks to God for you whenever we pray for you. Obviously, later on um, in verse 9, he begins to give supplications for them. But at the start, he begins with appreciation. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful? It's another lesson that we learn. That if we want to correct a brother or sister, if you want to reach out and help a brother, how about we follow Paul's example here, right? That the first thing that we do is that we show gratefulness to God for them before we begin to correct them. That's a good lesson to learn. That's verse 3 for us. And we're locked it, it's done and dusted. Now we begin the message, okay? I just uh, wanted to finish off that basic introduction and now the main meal. So you can say verse 3 is an entree. This is now verse 4, the main course. 
When Paul is thanking God for the Colossians in verse 4, and that's what we're going to focus today, is that he gives ground of his thankfulness, and that is the proof of their salvation. Right? So verse 4 is a proof of their salvation, and that becomes the ground for him to thank God for. Then later on, verses 5 to 8, he will continue to thank God for the benefits, for the result of the salvation that they're enjoying. Now, in verse 4, which is focusing more on the occasion of his appreciation, in other words, what triggered Paul to be grateful to God for the Colossians. He's thankful to God that he's assured of their salvation. He is confident that they're not false converts. That they are truly born again. He's grateful for that. Now what gives Paul this assurance? Now we read verse 4. Let's read the whole thing. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Now, what we need to understand is that in this verse, Paul gives the very bare minimum, the irreducible evidences for someone's salvation. These are the tests, two tests that tell you whether you are truly saved or not. Now, we need to understand something. In the scripture, there are many, many passages that give us multiple tests. There are, um, in the epistle of 1 John, there are about 11 tests to know whether you're born again. Then you've got the fruit of the Spirit. And they're sprinkled, sprinkled all over the New Testament, more um, tests. But none, no test is compared to these tests, these two tests. First, your faith in Christ Jesus. Second, the love which you have for all the saints. These two tests encapsulate all other tests in the Bible. They're the foundational test, the primary way to know whether you are saved or not. How do you know you're saved? Someone would say, I'm very confident. It's because I'm very, very confident that I'm saved. No, that is not a a primary way to know whether you're saved or not. Oh, yeah. Well, other people are very confident that I'm saved. Well, that doesn't that doesn't fly. That's not enough. These two tests are the primary tests. Let me give you an illustration to help you understand what I mean. When a lady is pregnant, how do you tell that she's pregnant? How do you know that she's pregnant? Well, there are two ways to tell. One way is to check for her symptoms. Does she have morning sickness? Does she crave for food? Does she go to the bathroom uh, more, uh, more often than before? Well, let's say that she does do all of these things. So all of these apply to her. Now, is she pregnant? What do we say? Yeah, she seems to be pregnant, but you cannot be definitive, right? You can't be certain. You can't say for sure that she has a baby in her tummy, right? 
But if you want to know for sure whether she's pregnant, what do you do? Do ultrasound, right? Get that thing, machine, and you scan on the tummy, see little arm, little leg, right? Little pulse or something. And you say, yep, you come out. <laughs> There's a baby in that thing. For sure she's pregnant. <laughs> right? Now, these tests are the ultrasound for genuine conversion. If you fail either of them, then there is no heartbeat. All right? There's no heartbeat. It's a false alarm. You're not truly saved. You are not a Christian. Right? That's how important these two tests are. You must pass both tests. If you pass these two tests, don't worry about any other test. That's why Paul gives it front and center as the part of even the introduction to his epistle. Just to make sure that he knows those whom he is addressing know whom they are. Right? You must pass these two tests if you are in the kingdom. You cannot afford to fail either of these two tests. And by the way, it is in that right order. There is an order in place. First, there is faith in Christ. Second, love for the saints. And so because of how serious this issue is, we're going to look at each of these two tests separately today, Lord willing. And we're going to look at that first test now. And I'm going to break it down one bit at a time just to make sure it is very clear in our mind what it means to have faith in, in Christ Jesus. So we start. Firstly, it says, your what? Faith in Christ Jesus. Not your knowledge, not your intellect, your faith. It's not about knowing set of information. There are people who read and understand great Christian literature, really good stuff. And, and we're kind of blown away by how well they articulate these biblical doctrines. They come um, to pray and they cross every T and they dot every I in their prayers and they speak with hard words and even words that I can't even spell. And then we say, wow, look at this kind of people. They must be really godly. If anyone is a Christian, it must be them. But hey, the Pharisees were like that and they perished. They perished. So not a big deal. Okay, use hard words, long words. Test me if I can spell them. That's fine. But that's not what makes a person a Christian. Having faith, what makes a person a Christian? All of these things are one thing. To have faith in Christ Jesus is entirely another. It's not about your knowledge. It's about your faith, your believing. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you have confidence who Jesus Christ is? That's first. Secondly, 
Notice the preposition. In. Your faith in Christ Jesus. It is not just about believing Jesus. It is believing in Jesus. There is an element of trust. In Queensland, if you've been there at Surface Paradise, there is a a ride. It's a thrill ride. It's called Slingshot, where you sit uh, in a chair. They put the um, um, seat belt on you, and then there's the machine that pulls you down, and all of a sudden, what does it do? It slingshots you to, I don't know, about 1,350 kilometers above the solar system. Okay, so it's just something really high. It feels that way anyway when I look at people flying that thing. And then with that same speed, it brings you back down. Now, do I have confidence, the faith that the engineers have done their work and uh, and they've done it to the best of their ability? Yeah. Do, Do I have faith? Do I believe that this machine is safe? Yeah. Yeah, I believe that. It is safe. Yes, I do. Do I believe that those people who are running this business have taken their permit from the council and it's legit? Yeah, pretty much. Why not? I can believe that too. If my kids ask me, and they did before, you know, they want to ride that thing, yeah, go ahead. Go for it. Knock yourself out. I'll record you. but it's over my dead body that you'll ever get me to sit in that chair, right? And that's, that's the difference. That's the difference between believing something and believing in something, right? To have faith in Christ, it is not just about a, a mental ascent of his death and resurrection. It's a lot more than that. It's placing your whole body and soul into his saving hands. It's entrusting him with your life and death that involves the act of the will. I will entrust Jesus with my salvation. Thirdly, please know the object of your faith. Again, we read in verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, It is not faith in a church. It is not faith in religion. It is not faith in in your father that he's a believer. It is not faith in the pastor or elders. You know what? It's not even faith in God in general. Muslims claim that they have faith in God. No. It's not even faith in Christian doctrines or Christian uh, concepts. So, of course, the doctrine of Christianity is true. I trust that it is true. But this does not make anyone a Christian just because you trust in the doctrine of Christianity. It's faith in the person of Jesus Christ. It is Him. It is Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, and his beauty is now unveiled to that person who is now a Christian. You know, you come to a fellowship with certain people and you ask, "Uh, how is your walk with Christ going? And they talk about all Christian stuff. 
They talk, they talk about their, their prayer life, their, their readings, their daily readings. They even talk about the challenges of, of, you know, the Christians today with the woke, um, theory or whatever, the critical race theory. And they talk about all these things, but the person of Jesus Christ is never mentioned. And it's as though their eyes are wide open to everything about Christianity, but somehow their eyes are still blinded to Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, this is not Christianity. Because to take away Christ, and you have taken away the object of our faith. We've taken away the bread of life from our spiritual meal. We've drained life out of the fountain of life. Faith in the person of Jesus. Fourthly, please note that this Jesus, who he is, that is the object of our saving faith. Let's, let's read carefully. It says, since we heard of your faith in what? In Christ Jesus, Christ, the Messiah the chosen one of God, to be the savior of the world. To be a Christian is to be one who has come to trust your whole entirety of your life in Jesus as your personal savior. And you're handed over your soul to him in order to keep it, to preserve it. Matthew 10, 39 says, he who has found his life, will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. In that corresponding passage in Luke, it says, we'll preserve it. A Christian is the one who has given his life over to Jesus, the chosen one. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, obviously, Obviously, by implication, it means you have no longer faith in yourself. Paul tells us that Christians are the ones who put no confidence in their flesh. A true Christian sees all his righteousness as filthy rag. He finds his flesh as nothing good dwells in it. That in and of himself, apart from Christ, he's utterly useless. He is worthless. And so he comes to rely entirely in Jesus for salvation. To have faith in Jesus as the, as the Savior, as the Christ, as I believe it was Charles Spurgeon that once said, to lean your whole weight on him, trusting him entirely, absolutely. Having faith in Christ Jesus. But please note, this is not only how we ought to view Jesus as the Christ. We also must view him as our Lord. How do we know? Where do we get this from? He already told us in verse 3, in the same passage that we read this morning. He already addressed Jesus as what? As our Lord. The one who died for you is your Lord. The one whom you place the entirety of your soul into his hands. You have to believe in him that he's not just as your savior, but he is your Lord. 
Do you believe this? What does it mean that he's your Lord? Well, I've taken a very simple approach to know what it means that he's your Lord. I just looked at the Greek dictionary for what that word Lord means. And and the Greek dictionary gives us a, a very wonderful explanation of what it means. And these are the synonymous words that the Greek dictionary tells us of what it means when it says Jesus Christ is our Lord. Let me read them to you. First, owner. Second, master. Authoritative. Ruler. Controller. Listen to this one. One who commands. Most important. Supreme. Jehovah. God. This is what Jesus is. We don't come and accept him first as a savior. And then later on, we accept him as Lord. It doesn't work this way. Why it doesn't work this way? Because he's always Lord. Right? The one who died and rose again in order to redeem his people has always been Lord. And a person who has faith in Jesus must have faith in him as both Lord and Savior. He sees Jesus as the center of everything. He wants to see everything in Christ. He may struggle in life with the lust of the flesh or the lust of of the eyes, but he's resolved to want Jesus Christ to be all and in all. And it involves personal response. It involves commitment way before there is any feelings. We're talking here about the commitment to the person of Christ. Commitment to grow in treasuring Christ in your heart as Lord. And so there is loyalty. There is dedication in this commitment. And because he's Lord of our heart, then this dedication is inner heart condition where I want to be dedicated to him from my heart as my Lord. What does this mean? It means this, that you delight to place yourself under the authority of his lordship. You recognize his absolute right to rule your life and you take pleasure in transferring the ownership of your life into his hands. Even when it comes to the cost of health, wealth, prosperity, relationships, it is the joy of the believer to make sacrifices for Jesus so that he would be magnified. And you are cheerfully and freely willing to forsake all in order to pursue the one. This is the first leg of 
the biblical assurance that you're truly saved. And so I want to ask you a very personal and very specific question. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's the first leg of the assurance. The second leg, now we continue reading and it says, and the love which you have for all the saints. Now, please note the very next word, and. It's not faith or love. It must be both and. Both are the opposite sides of the same coin of this assurance. Faith and love. The first is invisible. The second is visible. The first is vertical towards God. The second is horizontal towards man. The first is personal. The second is communal. Now, what I want to do is, again, I want to dissect this second test. And I want to break it down before you one bit at a time, since it is such an important topic, given that your salvation, the assurance of your salvation hinges upon this. Now, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it slightly different from the first test. What I'll do is I'll present to you what the scripture says bit by bit, and I'm going to have it in a form of a dialogue. All right. I'll pretend to be you, and I will ask a question or I'll make a comment, and I'll show you what the text says in response to this comment. So it's kind of like a, a dialogue. And I want to invite you um, to come along with me and see how um, some Ideas, some misconceptions that may be in our minds are dismantled by this passage, by this test. So the first thing it says, the love, which you have, the love, right? Simple. The love which you have, you've got to have love, right? And then one might be thinking, well, that's easy. Tick the box because, because you know what? I text a lot of people and um, I tell them that I love you. I love them. I do that all the time. I even, I even finish my SMSs with XX0 or O and X. You know, I've got the heart emoji everywhere in my Viber. So uh, I reckon I, I pass this test. First John 3.18, it says, Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Is it a good thing to have these XXOs and emojis and all that? I do that. That's not a problem. That's good. But that's not where you go to to see whether you've passed the test. Right? The love which you have. What does it mean, the love? What's the nature of this love? This love is called agape love. What is agape love? In 1 John 3.16. We don't have to go to the dictionary. We can go to the Bible. 
And it says, 1 John 3.16, we know love by this. So he's about to explain to us what that love means. That he laid down his life for us. Oh yeah, but this is Jesus. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It's a sacrificial love that leads us to serve others without reciprocation. It's not the worldly kind of love where, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours kind of love. It's not um, just serving when it's convenient. Texting. No. It's even when it's inconvenient. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a wonderful description of this love. I'm going to quickly paraphrase part of it. It is a love that doesn't force itself onto others. It doesn't seek the, the window seat. You know, where me first kind of attitude that we see in our children sometimes. Sometimes. Love that doesn't keep track on other people's sins. It wants to put them aside. It covers multitude of sin. Love loves to serve and it serves sacrificially, willfully, and yet at the same time, joyfully, with a smile in the face, not begrudgingly. Love serves patiently, and generously, and when it's exhausted, when all said and done, when when love is spent, love doesn't brag saying, "Look how much I served." Doesn't do that. Love does not have big head, only a big heart. And so, love does not whinge or complain. It doesn't. On the contrary. Love wants to be thankful like Paul was. Especially thankful for those people that you are serving. Okay. <clears throat> Fine. It makes, all, it makes sense. But, well, you know, I, I get this. I, I, I get it. It's in the Bible. But at the moment, I, I'm very busy with my studies and, um, you know, I need to work these extra hours to pay off my mortgage. But you know what? I've got this. I got it because my plan is once my mortgage is paid off, I will love this way. Please note what it's not saying. Look here. I'm going to read it again. Look what it's not saying. It's not saying since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you will have. It doesn't say that. It says the love which what? You have in present tense. You currently at this point in time, you own this virtue. You possess it now. To say that I will love later, not now. What you're saying is I don't have assurance now. I will have assurance later when I pay off my mortgage. That doesn't make sense, brothers. It doesn't make sense. If you do not love now, 
It means you do not have assurance that you're a Christian now. And if you do not have the assurance that you're a Christian now, how do you know that you will have the assurance later when you paid off the mortgage of your house and your car and your motorbike and your scooter, whatever? You don't. Are you saying that I have to be perfect? No, no, it's not saying since you have perfect love. It doesn't say that you have to have that sinless, perfect love, which, you know, you have. No, it's not about perfection. It's about direction of life. So let's not take it to the other extreme. We're not saying that you have to be sinless like Jesus was, but this is your your way of life. You know that you want to be heading that way and you're growing in that love. It's the kind of love is a love, whether you have a high degree and intensity of it or not. But you want to head that way. And this is your direction. You fail, you stumble, but you want to grow in that way. You've got to have this. You have to have this love. When? Now. Present tense. Every believer must possess this kind of love now. Okay, well, very well. <clears throat> you think about it and you might, one of you or two, or whatever, uh, think and say, well, it's true and now I'm reflecting and I'm examining and I conclude that I do have this love for my family. Right? Flesh. Of my flesh, blood of my blood. I, I work hard. I know I work hard. Um, I make lots of sacrifices for them. I cherish my family. Does this count? Please look closely to the object of love. Again, I'm going to read it to you. The love which you have for whom? All, all your, your family? Unbelievers, neighbors, those people that I've never seen before ever um, in, um, I don't know, South Africa that you try to support. The whales, <laughs> save the whales. No. The saints, the love which you have for all the saints, that's what gives you the evidence that you're saved. Who are the saints? It's the truly converted believer, the genuine Christians, those who are in the kingdom of God. Of course, you should work hard for your family. No doubt about that. If, if you don't work hard for the family, the Bible says you're even worse than an unbeliever. But if that's all that you've got and you do not have any love, this kind of love for the saints, you don't have any assurance that you're saved. This test is against Jesus' bride, not yours. It's against the children of God, not your children. How many unbelievers do we know? How many atheists that we come across um, that, that love their family sacrificially? Right? Many. How many atheists do you know that love believers, the saints in a church, sacrificially? What? If one doesn't exhibit this kind of love for the believers, you know what? He can, he can pray, he can sing, he can walk around with a halo in his head if he wants to. 
but he has no right from God to have any confidence that he's saved. Okay, <clears throat> next. Oh yeah, that's fine. That's that's it makes sense. And you know what? Yes, I, I have a couple of people, um, believers that I love this way. I, I kind of really don't care about the rest of the saints. Um, I throw them behind me. They're in a shadow because I don't know if they're even worth me loving. But I have a couple of believers. And his couple of believe, believers are, man, they're, they're so lovable. I mean, love is dripping out of them. And I just, I just love the love in them. So, I guess I'm saved. Well, again, let's look closely. The love which you have for whom? Couple of saints. Most of the saints. <laughs> all the saints. Now, all the saints. What does it mean, all the saints? This is not referring to all believers in all the churches in all of the world. It doesn't make sense. It would be absurd to for Paul to say, oh, you love the universal church. It doesn't make sense. You cannot do that. You can't possibly exercise love, this kind of love, to the universal church. The context here, as he referred just two verses earlier about the saints, is the local body, the local church. All the saints who are aware, a colossy, he referred to them in verse 2. And then later on, he will refer again to them in the context of one another. So what this means is that true love is not selective. It is not uh, I pick and choose kind of love. True love is all inclusive. And it extends and it covers all the saints in this community. Now let me qualify just a little bit so that again we don't misunderstand and go to the other extreme. We're not saying here that somehow we've got to share the same degree of enjoyment or pleasure or emotion with, the, with each other. Nor does it mean that we all have to equally be so close exactly to each other in the same way. Even Jesus uh, with, uh, with the 12 apostles, we knew that we know that he was drawn closer to the first group and he was a bit further out from the last group but what it means is this if anyone is in need we jump out of our bed and those of us who are able to fulfill that need run for rescue no matter the proximity they are from us just like in, in a house with a, with a family and, and in, in a, given all the right circumstances with siblings. Yeah, you may have a couple of siblings that like to play with each other, but you would expect even if another sibling that you're not really usually playing with and he's hurt, he's in need. What do you do? You ought to run 
to your brother who is in need, though he may not be in this close proximity to you. We love all the saints, not just the ones who are within our age bracket, not just the ones who have the same hobbies or speak the same language or eat the same food. No. We don't just love the ones who understand us and respect us. You know, if you only love those who respect you, you know what you're really loving? You're loving the fact that they respect you, right? Meaning you, you love the fact that they love you as much as you love you. It's self-love. It's a self-love. And it masquerades itself as though it is a divine love. No. For your salvation to be genuine, your love must extend. It must reach even those people that discourage you and challenge you and hurt you. You have got to love them. Meaning, when you know that they are in need, you reach out to them. How do you know you're truly saved? First, and the most important, so you have to have faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Second, and out of that and through that, You love all the saints in your local community. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is clear. And it is sharper than two-edged sword. And we lay bare before your soul, naked as though. And we say, God, rip out of us what does not belong to you. Sanctify us. Cause us to be honest. Are we really saved? Will we truly see you face to face with a smile in our faces or with terror in our hearts? We pray, God, that through this message that you would draw to yourself those that are elect, that they would humble themselves if they're not truly saved. Put in their hearts now those who are not truly saved, this terror of your wrath to a point that they cry out, what must I do to be saved? Save me, Jesus. Save me, Lord. I don't want to die in my sin. Lord, we pray that you would reach out with your saving, loving hand into the heart of those unregenerate among us. And by your mercy, regenerate them, lead them to repent and believe in the name of your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.